reading for today is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Laura. So if you're a Bible flipper like I am and you want to be in the book where um, the preacher, the teacher, the leader is, uh, go to Isaiah chapter 9. But also, sorry, we're also going to be in Isaiah 61, we're going to be in Isaiah 6, and then we can't leave out the New Testament, don't want to hurt the New Testament's feelings, we'll also be in Luke chapter 12 at some point. So uh, just to give you a little heads up on, on that, um, you think about that passage that Laura just read, and really the, the centerpiece of the passage is verse 6, that the anointed one, the Messiah who is coming is a wonderful counselor, and he's mighty God, and he's the everlasting father, and he's the prince of peace. And that's really going to be our focus for the next four weeks of Advent. We're going to talk about Jesus being those four people, those four gods, those four titles in our life. And I want to start today by asking a couple of questions, because these are things that we're going to, we're going to deal with today. Uh, once we actually got through some introductory, introductory material and get to this idea of wonderful counselor. Number one, is anyone just tired? And I know I could stop the question there and everybody would be like, yeah, okay, I get that. But specifically, and it's a rhetorical question, I know the answer to this, but I want to draw your attention to it. Is anyone just tired of, of the darkness, of the trouble, of the evil, and, and, and then, on top of the reality of the darkness, trouble, and evil in this world, uh, the constant prophets of doom that we have to listen to all day long, that, that the, the end is coming, the, the, it's just going to get worse. And, and I understand that feeling. I get it. Uh, I, I know of one pastor who said, at one point, he said, I'm not an evolutionist. I'm a devolutionist. I don't believe we're good and getting better. I believe we're bad and getting worse. And it can feel like that. It can really feel like that. But it's just so dark. And, and, and it, it's fatiguing, I think. And then here's the second question I want you to just ruminate on as we go through this. What do you worship? Well, God, of course, Pastor. No, really. What do you worship? And... How do you worship it? How do you show your affection 
How do you serve it? How do you worship it? Um, thinking about this darkness, this evil, uh, Alan Ross writes this. In spite of all the advances of civilization, the world today is still consumed with a desire for peace and a fear of war. The problem is still the presence of evil. It sets brother against brother and nation against nation. Ultimately, the world's gloom and despair is linked to spiritual darkness. The Bible comforts and reminds those of us who have come to trust in Jesus Christ not to despair as if there was no hope. This has been a theme lately. It's not just about Advent. Advent is, the theme, main theme of Advent is the hope of, of the coming again of Jesus and, and when he sets everything right in the new Jerusalem. But, but you, you listen to these PhDs and these psychologists and these psychiatrists, and they're all saying the same thing. Human beings cannot live without hope. Hope is essential to our livelihood. And we have the hope. We have the best hope. It's in Christ who is coming again. Uh, looking at that passage that Laura read, let's look at the first four verses, two through five. This is Isaiah speaking, and, he, and he, in this case he writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Let me stop there. Understand that primarily in the Bible, you're not, you're not writing urban to people in urban contexts, okay? You're writing to an agrarian culture. Uh, the economy was based in sowing seed and then harvesting uh, what you get out of that seed. So the harvest is a big deal. The harvest is your payday. The harvest is the day that you celebrate. The harvest is the day that you divide up the spoils. The harvest is the day that you start thinking about what you're going to be able to do with all the money you have. I would say the current day, uh, if this was being written today, it would be uh, as with the joy of the close of escrow when you get your check. That's kind of what it's like. So think about, think about it in terms like that. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So here's what Isaiah is doing. Understand, when, when the Bible was written, they didn't have these uh, chapter and verse divisions and so what was happening right before this passage, what we would call in chapter 8, is, is this would be the backdrop, the context. What Isaiah was doing in chapter 8 was he was saying, look, you're living, the people of God, Israel, you're living under the threat of war. There are the Assyrians to the north. There's, there are the Babylonians to the, to the west. They're threatening to come in, and eventually they did come in. They're a problem. You're living under the threat of war, the doom and gloom of war. Don't you feel like we're constantly in the Middle East, we're being warned about that, and now we've got this whole thing with North It just, it never seems to end, right? There's always this threat, this darkness, this violence against the backdrop of that. And Isaiah being used by God to call God's people to trust in God, even in the midst of the darkness and the threats, this is Isaiah announcing, and this is really important to understand. This is Isaiah. These verses, 2 through 5, is Isaiah announcing in past tense verbs, as if it's already happened, what is going to happen in the future. 
He's writing in past, it's a literary technique that Hebrew writers use, writing in past tense verbs to describe something that's going to happen. In other words, this is guaranteed. There is a Messiah coming. There is redemption coming. There is restoration coming. This is really good news against the backdrop of all that darkness and gloom. Things are finally going to be made right. Those who suffered are going to find joy and peace. Uh, Those who have lived in darkness and evil and captivity, they're going to be liberated. This is our hope. Uh, Another psychiatrist, Bruce Perry, in his most recent book, fascinating book, he writes this. It is exhausting to view the entire world as a potential threat. The reality of evil makes genuine hope essential to life. And Bruce Perry's not even a Christian, and he gets this. He understands the importance of hope, and we're the ones that have the hope. We're the ones that have the word of God pointing to the Messiah of God who is going to rule as God, and we can, we can lean into that. That's his, that's his kingdom. And according to verses 2 and 4, the passage assumes that those who have lived and walked in the darkness of terror, those who have endured the yoke of burden and the oppression of the rod and the staff, which was already mentioned in this passage, they will be liberated by God's Messiah. And then we get to verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. He's talking about when Jesus comes. But look at the language. For to us, a child is born. Uh, To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, he switches here on the verb tenses, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. This is the Messiah. This is Isaiah 700 years before Jesus is born, pointing at Jesus. Now, we use that word Messiah all the time, and we hardly ever define it. So I want to make sure we understand what the word Messiah means. In Greek, it's Christos. It's it's the word Christ. And literally, it means anointed. And the Messiah is not unanointed one, but the anointed one by God to be our Lord, our King, our Savior, and our Redeemer. And that word Redeemer is important because he's coming to redeem. He's not coming to wipe out. He's coming to redeem and restore. Notice that when you, if you're a Christian and you came to Christ, he didn't wipe you out. He, restored, he made you a new creation, but you're essentially a, a new version of the old fallen person. And that's what Jesus does. That's what happens when the new Jerusalem comes. We think of heaven up there, but the new Jerusalem is going to come here. And it's going to be a restoration of creation. And and he's king. But we need to understand he's a king not like what we necessarily think of as kings or presidents or leaders. Have, Have you ever noticed... I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems like when we elect a president, we're pretty sure that that president needs to do things the way we think they ought to be done. And if he doesn't or she doesn't, then they're wrong for the job. Well, they felt that same way about kings 3,000 years ago. And they felt that same way about the Messiah. They had their ideas about how the Messiah was going to be a king. And what the Messiah was going to do when Jesus came 
In that particular context, the, the Messiah was going to throw off the yoke of the Romans and destroy and obliterate the Romans, and that was all the Messiah had to do. Just get rid of the Romans. Well, you get rid of the Romans, you're going to have other problems too. That's not the job of the Messiah, the king. This is a king that's different than what we would think of or expect. This is a king who brings peace and justice, but he does it his way. This is a king whose first flinch is love, not retaliation. This is a king who loves and desires to redeem the kingdoms of the world, to bring peace and justice to the kingdoms and, and have them become his kingdom, a right kingdom and a righteous kingdom. And this is Jesus. This is our hope. I would argue this is not the season of giving, although I know Amazon just had an incredible week, right? <laughs> How many clicks did they get per second, okay? I think that would be an interesting study. But it's really not the season of giving. This is the season of receiving God's Son. It's the season of receiving His hope. We should be reminded of the hope of God every week. But if we're not doing it every week, we at least need to do it in December because that's what this season is really about. It's, it is truly the season of hope. But there is a kind of a troubling word in there, interesting word that a lot of people uh, maybe have their own opinion about. I mean, the government's going to be on his shoulders and his government's going to increase. Some of you are like, yeah, and others are like, nah, government, okay. Okay, we need to understand what the text means by this word government. Literally, the Hebrew word means the rule and responsibility for taking care of his people and of really important, uh, of great importance, this rule, this government, is not going to be accomplished by the prodding of the staff or the whipping of the rod, as in previous times, even mentioned in this passage, but rather, this government, this rule is going to be on his shoulders. He's going to do it. The burden for this is his. He will carry the burden and not push the burden to us. I don't know if you've noticed, history has proven this time and time again over the centuries. It is proven this time and time again. Human governments always have the tendency to push all the burden down toward the people, never up toward them. Have you ever noticed that? Okay, Jesus is a government. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a Messiah who says, all the burden comes to me. And it was taken care of at the cross. And he says in Matthew 11, my burden is easy. My yoke is easy. I'm not going to throw this yoke on you. I'm the one who has the yoke. You're going to join me and receive all the benefits of that yoke. The burden is on me. The burden is on my shoulders. As far as the government increases, it's my responsibility that increases. And until this time that we live in today and even beyond, until Jesus comes again, I would argue that worldly leaders, government leaders, and spiritual leaders, all leaders in the world, generally, we have always placed a yoke of burden on our people and our followers. That's just the way it is. That's part of the fallen nature of human beings. That's just the way we are. Not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the it is finished Messiah. Do you, do you hear that? The last thing he says on the cross. It is finished. It's done. There's nothing else to be done. I've done it all. Just come to me. Just come to me. Jesus is the true liberation. It's funny. 
look at Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. Here's Isaiah again talking about the Messiah. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Uh, Jesus' first sermon, recorded, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, was him asking for the scroll of Isaiah and reading this passage and then rolling up the scroll, handing it to the attendant, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Messiah is here. We're going to get this thing started now. He is the Messiah. And then it is significant back in Isaiah 9 that right after we hear all the things that the Messiah is going to do, and we heard some of those things also in Isaiah 61, but right after we hear all the things that the Messiah is going to do, it's significant that he's then described with these four titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Those are magnificent titles. Th think about it just briefly this way. Wonderful Counselor. Wouldn't that... Wouldn't that be nice to have a wonderful counselor in your life? Whatever wonderful means, that would be awesome. We're going to discover what that means, but that would be awesome to have that. Somebody, here you go. I hear wonderful counselor. In other words, somebody who speaks with empathy, somebody who has a certain level of compassion, and here you go, somebody who listens. That would be kind of wonderful. How about mighty God? This would be somebody who protects us when we need protecting and not before. Somebody who provides for us when we need provision and doesn't start to make up times when we need protection just so that he can come in and save the day but is, is actually real with us. You know, God's timing is always exactly what it's supposed to be, and that's really hard sometimes for us. We know that God is a God of provision and a God of, prote of, of protection, but, but much of the time we live our life not sure which one it is that he's doing for us if he's doing either. He's doing them, but he's doing them for his good purpose and in his timing. And we need to trust in that. He's the mighty God. He's also the everlasting father. He is a good father. In other words, he's someone who's trustworthy, someone you can count on, someone who is available, someone who is disciplined when discipline is needed, someone who is fun when fun is needed, Someone who is a leader when leadership is needed. I know some of you, God is fun. Yeah. Yes. And he's the prince of peace. Under his rule, no more war, no more evil, no more darkness. Lots of light. This is good. So this Advent season, we're going to take a look each week at those, those four titles. So what does it mean that he is wonderful counselor? Well, I... 
I want to first try to explain it through Scripture, and then we'll get into some of the, the, the words. So, if, again, if you're, if you're a Bible flipper, go to Luke chapter 12. My ESV Bible titles this, Jesus is teaching here, and it titles it, The Parable of the Rich Fool. I have my own title for this parable. It's the parable of the first-person pronouns. Listen to what happens in this parable. And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He had a bumper crop like he's never had before. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God. Part of being rich toward God is seeking his counsel. What is it about us that we're so sure that the best possible counsel we can get is from ourselves? Why do we do that? I am telling you, there are times, this is so simple, but it illustrates a bigger point. There are times when I get dressed in the morning and I don't want Jackie to see what I'm wearing because I like it, and she might not let me walk out looking like that, <laughs> literally. I don't want her counsel, even though it's probably wiser than mine. She was a retail buyer for years. She knows her stuff, okay? Why, why, here's the reason why we don't want anybody else's counsel. We don't want to be contradicted. We don't want to hear that we're possibly wrong. It's just easier to consult with ourselves because all of our preferences, all of our biases, all the ways that we think get confirmed when we consult with ourselves. The, but, but why would we do that in light of Jeremiah 17.9? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? Here's why. We don't believe Jeremiah 17.9. That may be true for other people, but my heart is pure. And I need to just follow my heart. That's a problem. And I'm not just advocating for the counsel of others. Obviously, I'm advocating for the counsel of God in the midst of this. That we need his counsel. And, and we'll explain why it's important in just a minute. You can also look at Hebrews 4.15. The writer says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. When you come to Jesus and say, I got issues, he's able to sympathize because he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. He knows what it's like to be us. But he also understands how to, how to power your way through that and pass that. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 says, take every thought captive to Jesus. Here's how one person has paraphrased that. Think and pray to Jesus before you speak. Or, more contemporarily, Think and pray to Jesus before you post. It's another way you can look at it. Now, the Hebrew word translated wonderful literally means miraculous. He's the miraculous counselor. What does miraculous mean? Supernatural. 
How would you like supernatural counsel? You ever think about it that way? Supernatural counsel and intervention into your life. That would be really helpful, I think. Where else are you going to go for supernatural counsel? But how? Where? I know. See, I'm, I've been told I'm really good at giving the principles, but then not telling anybody how to go ahead and fulfill those principles. Well, here you go. Here's one of the problems. It's, it's because I don't have any tricks. I don't have any new ideas on where to go for this supernatural counsel. It's nothing new. Th those of you who are note takers, you're going to put your pens down right now because you're like, I heard this before. Here you go. You got to go to his word. You got to go to his word. It's hard to read his word. I don't understand it. It's no fun. The plot's not that interesting. It takes too long to develop, blah, blah, blah. I understand that. I get that. It's a discipline, but it's worth it. it, it it's, like, it's like working in a mine. You know, do, you just, do you just dig into a mine? Oh, wow, diamonds and gold and jewelry. Oh, no, no you got to dig, and you got to dig, and you got to dig, and you got to. But you think, oh, that's worth it. There's something deep in there. There is. And when you pray and you ask for the Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures, you get with other people who have been doing this longer than you who might be able to shed some light as well. You read it over and over again. You, you look at a commentary or two, and suddenly it comes to life, and this word cuts us to the marrow. It's the only thing that can do that to us. Read your Bibles. It's worth it. It was at our seat uh, Friday night, and Sean read... Proverbs chapter 1, which may be the longest chapter in Proverbs. He just read it out loud, very slowly. It took a little over two minutes. And then he made this point. He said, see, you can read a whole chapter of Scripture in about two minutes. Every day. Every day. Read Scripture. So I have no fancy tricks. Another one, prayer, non-negotiable. Pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know. There's a book of prayer in the Bible. It's called the Psalms. And it deals with every issue that we deal with. You can learn prayer from the Psalms. You can learn prayer by listening to other people who pray. And then, of course, here you go. Those of you who know, the and he's going to say community and intentional gospel-centered relationships. Yes! Get into community and get into intense, intentional gospel-centered relationships as well. And then here's the fourth one. We don't talk about this one very often, but we're going to talk about it this morning. Worship. You can get counsel in worship, sometimes the best counsel through worship, if we have a true and proper understanding of what worship is, because most of us have a really messed up idea of what it means to worship, or what it means to go to worship, or what we're supposed to do or receive in worship. Uh, look at Isaiah 6. I told you we'd be back and forth. Now we're over in Isaiah 6. So go back to Isaiah 9 and go to the left one or two pages, and you'll be there. This is the story of Isaiah's call into ministry. It's interesting that it happens um, uh, in, verse, in chapter 6, after the first five chapters. But here we get the story of his call. In the year that King Uzziah died, see what you can learn from Scripture? I had no idea Uzziah had passed away, but now I know that, okay? In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. The, the seraphim, that's a, uh, a plural of the 
of the type of specific type of angels who are assigned to the highest order. So these are the angels that are assigned to be with the Lord God, to be with Yahweh. So he sees the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now, th this may be, um, there, there may be some deeper meaning here, but I, I've, what I've always understood is that the reason that the angel has six, uh, has six wings, two, uh, three pairs of two, you got to have the wings to cover your face. Too close to God. Too much glory to handle, so you got to cover your face. You also kind of don't want God to see your face, okay? And then, and then let's just admit, feet are kind of nasty. you got to cover those when you're in God's presence, you know. And, and then he's got two to, to, to fly with, okay? So they're flying around, and, and, and one called to another and said, here, here are the angels flying around. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. Suddenly Isaiah's going, okay, I finally understand me. And it only came by standing in the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having, his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and, whom will go, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. You look at the... There's a lot going on in this passage. I want to look at the characteristics of worship in this passage. And there's a number that you can draw out here. First of all, there's a recognition that God is the one on the throne. We like to, to be on the throne. And, and, and most of us, myself included, we spend most of our time trying to rationalize and maneuver God off the throne so that we can get up there. That's essentially how we live our lives. But he's the one who is high and lifted up. Second of all, it's an understanding and acceptance that he is holy and perfect and pure and completely beyond reproach. He's not wrong about anything. He's not wrong about anything. Third, his glory, th that word glory literally means weight, but his glory fills the entire creation. There is no corner of the universe that you can look and not see his glory stamped on that, reflected on it, or filled with with his glory. It's his glory. And it, it, think about the world we live in today. It's all about our glory, my glory, human glory. No, the world is filled with his glory. So who's supposed to be worshipped here, us or him? Another one is, is a recognition that our lips are unclean. We're the broken ones in this relationship, not God. And, and then... The fact and the understanding that he has taken away our sin. He has paid for our sin. He has atoned for our sin. He has forgiven us for our sin. He did that. We, we didn't pretty ourselves up and go, here I am, God, pretty cool, right? Save me. No, he reached down in spite of us, not because of us, and he saved us. That's worth 
serving and worshiping. And then it all leads to verse 8, an attitude and a life of complete, humble submission. Submission to God. Here am I. Send me. Paul says in Romans 12 that our entire lives are to be offered up as a sacrifice, as, as a, a life of worship to him who has saved us. God is an audience of one properly receiving our praise and worship. Uh, interesting, the words in, in Scripture that we translate variously as worship, virtually all of them have at their root the concept of to serve. To ser- Isn't that interesting? How do we think of worship? We think of worship, mostly we do. We think of worship of, of something that we attend, something that we get, something that we receive. Not, not that people are worshiping us, but we're here so that, you know, Cody can do his music and, and Frank can, you know, you know, tell us about God, but also throw in a few of those stupid dad jokes and maybe I'll laugh a little bit. You know, it's something we receive. No. Worship means to serve God. What we're doing here, why do you think they call it a service? We're here to serve. That's what worship is. Worship, here you go, worship is not a consumer product, but we've made it into one. And let me tell you guys something. You need to understand, leaders of the 20th and 21st century American evangelical churches are just as much to blame for this as anyone. It's not just the worshipers. It's the leaders of churches that have turned their churches into places of entertainment and convenience and not about the worship of God. So we're all culpable in this. It's not just... It's not just the people who attend. It's the people who lead as well. Worship is awe, reverence, and adoration of Jesus, who is the wonderful counselor. And in that worship, we actually do receive counsel. We are reminded he's God and we're not. Worship is not about us. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our comfort. It's not about enticements. And those things are not bad things. We want you to be comfortable. We want you to like it. We want all of that stuff, but that's not the primary purpose. And when we make those things the primary purpose, we have turned it into a consumer product. Worship is God, and it's about God. Let me tell you. Okay, here you go. Now, these are my observations, so you can, you can have at it all you want with this, okay? I'm off script now. That script, anyway. These are my observations as your pastor. I want to just talk to you as the congregation. I want you to hear this. And understand, this is coming from the sermon guy. I'm the sermon guy, right? Cody, he's that worship guy. He's that music guy. Okay, I'm the sermon guy. And most of us, frankly, we don't think of the sermon as part of the worship. We think of the worship as all the other stuff. And then I get up and teach and proclaim, and then you have all the other stuff again, and that's the worship. The sermon is just as much a part of the worship, but I am the sermon guy. I'm not musically inclined. You should be thankful for that, okay? I don't impress that on you, Okay. I'm also, in case some of you haven't noticed this or figured this out yet, I tend to be really left brain cognitive, not right brain feely, touchy, emotional, creative. The only thing, I am creative in one area of my life, sin and the rationalization of it. For some reason, I'm really creative there, but everywhere else, forget it, okay? So this is the left brain cognitive sermon guy saying this, my sense is that we tend to undervalue the singing and the emotion that should be brought to our services. That's my sense. 
let me explain a little. I get the feeling that many of us feel like if we really express ourselves, that it's going to be frowned on by the rest of the community. This is Arcadia, man. We're supposed to be sophisticated and reserved and proper. And I, I, get, I just get that sense. I get that, that feeling from us. Some of us are really reticent to actually express. I don't think that's a good thing. Some of you may be old enough to remember when the national speed limit was 55 miles an hour. Anybody remember that? The national speed limit was 55 miles an hour, even on the interstates. That was President Jimmy Carter's legacy, okay? During that time, I moved twice, okay? And I had to rent a U-Haul each time. During that time of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, U-Haul installed something on all of their accelerators in their trucks called governors. No matter how hard you push, you could push your foot through the floorboard, no matter how hard you push that accelerator, that U-Haul truck was not going above 55 miles an hour. It stunk. I hated it. I feel like some of us come into worship with a U-Haul governor on our expression. You know, we're, we're here and we're like... Mm We're so mindful when we worship, maybe too mindful. Listen to Psalm 33. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. We're, at, we're in prison. There were people shouting all the time. These guys were shouting during the worship. Uh, praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, I don't, I'm not interested, we're not interested in changing your nature. If you're truly reserved, reserved worship is fine. Here's the problem. If you're, if you're disengaged and you're using this idea that you're reserved as an excuse to be disengaged, that's a problem. There should be no reason to be disengaged. We are worshiping the creator God of the universe who has saved us. Do not be disengaged. Engage. The Bible implores us to sing and to shout and to express the Bible even talks about raising hands. It's okay to raise your hands. How many of us go to the Cardinals games and we raise our hands? Occasionally, we raise our hands, you know? But we're here in worship, and, and even if we've got that feeling, it's kind of like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Touchdown! No, no, we're in church, okay? All right? It's okay. It's okay. Now, here's a question for me, but I want you to translate it into your language and your context. But this is a question for me. I ask myself this question all the time when I need a little guilt in my life, okay? <laughs> Why am I willing to be so emotionally involved with the Chicago Blackhawks but not the wonderful counselor? Why? God demands a response, not because he's standing there with a rod and a staff saying, respond, respond. He demands a response simply because of who he is. That just demands a response. Also, I want you to think, you're not just singing for yourself. And I know sometimes people say, well, the songs are really hard to sing. I, I get that. Work at it. When a new song is introduced, it takes me a little while to get into it, but work at it. Try it. It's okay. Mess it up. 
Everybody else is messing it up too. But it's important to understand that you're not just singing for yourself, but also for your neighbor. It is an encouragement to the people around you to see you singing and praising. It's something that happens in the community that is good for all of us. And I'll tell you, we are really careful. Cody is really careful about picking songs for their theological content, not their popular appeal. He picks songs specifically that point us to who Jesus is, point us to who God is, in praise and adoration and affirmation and worship. And the singing is the one time during the service when we as a community are saying the same thing. Even during the sermon, we're not really saying the same thing because I know that there are people wrestling with what I'm saying. You're thinking about it. You're wrestling. You're not sure you agree. Here you go. You are doing what John tells us to do. You are testing the spirits, and you should. But when we're singing, we're not testing the spirits. We are in agreement about who Jesus is. And it's a good thing for us to be in agreement about that. Think about your neighbor. We really do want freedom in worship, but really what we want is worship. And personally, uh, per, again, personally, uh, one of the things that's hard for me is I have some context with this stuff. I, I'm not afraid to say that, that what we do, and, and, and I know I'm speaking in categories now. I am now talking about the, the other aspects other than the sermon of, of the worship service. But let me tell you something. Check around. What Cody does here for a church our size and with our resources is flat out amazing. If you are treating it as a consumer product, you're going to get nothing better anywhere else. We have mega church pastors coming into this church to look at what Cody does. Do you understand that? Mega church pastors with way more money, way more influence. It's good here if that's what you're looking for. It is really good. But what we're really looking for is to be pointed to God. And that's Cody's desire. That's Cody's heart. That's all he talks about during the staff meeting. Sometimes we have to shut him down. And, and, and I think sometimes we take that for granted, and that leads into preferences. You, you need to understand not everyone's favorite style of worship or music is going to be honored. Here or here you go, in any church, it's just not. We don't have this, very, frankly, very much at Redemption. We've, we've always had this style from the very beginning. This is who we are. But in churches that have been around a while that have had to go through this transition, it splits churches. It breaks people apart. People get in, Literally, people get into fights in the parking lot about this stuff. When you start changing the style and the music of, of, of worship because people's pre, people think worship is about meeting my preferences. It's, it's just not. And, and I want you to remember that when we go to the New Jerusalem and there's music going on, there isn't any way to complain about the music. You're just going to have to suck it up and like it, okay? God's in charge of the music up there, okay? The point of worship is that it's for God. It's directed to an audience of one, not many. We're exalting him. We're praising him. We're testifying to him. And let me just throw this into. I know I'm running a little long, but I want to talk about instruments. It's, again, not a huge deal here. But I've been through this for decades now, and it's fascinating to me. Understand, the Bible loves percussion. And it's everywhere, but here you go. Psalm 150. It doesn't like just symbols. It likes what kind of symbols? Loud, crashing symbols. Loud, 
crashing. So the Bible loves percussion. The Bible also loves stringed instruments. We read about a little bit about string. You know what's up here? We have 21st century zithers and lyres. They're called guitars. Stringed instruments. Okay? The whole controversy surrounding the pipe organ has fascinated me for decades. We don't have a pipe organ here, so we never have this conversation. Let me tell you something. It used to come up on a weekly basis where I was before. We had a pipe organ. We used it occasionally. We, we could occasionally find somebody that knew how to actually play it. Okay? But just having it in the, in the sanctuary created all kinds of distraction and conversation for people who really liked the pipe organ. Okay. And, and they would come, and they would try to justify I had these meetings over and over and over. You, re, you understand that the pipe organ is really God's instrument. It's an instrument of God. It's the holiest instrument. We need to be using the pipe organ. Okay, let me give you a little history lesson about the pipe organ. During the 16th century, the pipe organ was not in any church. And this is largely attributed to Martin Luther, but it's other people who did it as well. The pipe organ was not in any church in the 16th century. The pipe organ was an instrument of the brothel. You would go to the brothel, to, here you go, sorry for the language, to chase skirts and guzzle beer and listen to the pipe organ. All those mighty warrior, um, a mighty God, mighty God is actually a beer drinking melody with theological mu um, words. Okay. Luther and others of their day looked at that instrument and said, we need that instrument in the church. If, if that instrument's getting those people into the brothels, maybe it'll bring these people into the church and we can tell them about Jesus. So your little holy instrument was an instrument of the brothel. Isn't that interesting? I had one lady walk up to me one day, stop me, and she said, see that pipe organ, Pastor Frank? Yes. <laughs> I see it every Sunday. <laughs> She said, I want you to understand, the only instrument God hears in heaven is that pipe organ. He doesn't hear anything else. He only hears that pipe organ. I said, what's your favorite instrument? She said, well, it's a pipe organ. Mine's a guitar. I think he only hears the electric guitar in heaven. Where is this conversation going? You see how that works? See, the instrument isn't what's important. God says, use these instruments to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, to praise him, to worship him. That's what it's about. And by the way, just so that you know, uh, my preferences aren't even met here in terms of music. I don't even get to go to Cody and say, I really like this song. How come we never do David Crowder? Because Crowder's so yesterday, that's why. Well, then I'm yesterday. We design and strategize the music for honoring God and no one else. And it's a shame that it, it really is a shame that it's become the quintessential consumer product in, in American churches. And again, we, we share the blame for that. The leaders do. Uh, Eugene Peterson in one of his books says this. Uh, church today has been captured by a tourist mindset. We're just all going on a tour Checking out the churches. Who's got the best this? Who's got the best that? Oh, their coffee is really good at this church. Their ingress and egress to their parking lot, amazing, smooth. You think that this is, people say things like this about church, you know. How about, you know what? They honor God and who Jesus is at that church. That's what I want people to say about redemption, ultimately. Uh, 
Dr. Mike Moore, who's an Old Testament scholar who lives here in the valley, used to teach at Fuller. He, he, he actually um, came up with a word for what we have in church today. He calls it worshiptainment. Worshiptainment. The wonderful counselor is not a product. The wonderful counselor is our God and our Lord and our leader. And by coming and worshiping him, we're actually understanding and going deeper in our relationship with him and allowing him to be our counselor. Because he's God, he's Lord, he's creator, and he deserves us. And he deserves our worship and affirmation. And here you go. We're all going to worship something, right? All of us worship something. It should be the Lord God. Hebrews 4.16 says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you uh, that you are the one true God. You're the creator God of this universe, and you are, uh, you are the one who sent your son to be the Messiah and to atone for our sin and to forgive us for our sins. And God, you are the one that we should exalt and lift up with our praises. God, let us do that. God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would direct us to your glory. And that would be a blessing to us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.